welcome to episode 54 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by Jason Weinstein, formerly of the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. Uh, uh, so, Jason, um, you got a nominee for uh uh, story of the week? Yeah, I thought that the, the bank cyber heist that involved uh, theft of potentially uh, up to a billion dollars um, from a whole bunch of banks, uh, it's kind of like Ocean's Eleven for the 21st century. Yeah. That was the story that moved me the most. Yeah, time. I thought that was a, that was great. Well, so we'll come back to that. Uh, our guest commentator, uh, who's not here yet, but who will be uh, uh, talking to me, is Ben Wittes of Lawfare. Those of you who thought that you were going to get Julie Brill, I have to tell you that uh, she could not get to Vermont. I was there, uh, but uh, the bad weather this week uh, kept her from going to Vermont, so we're going to have to reschedule that. Uh, and Ben has jumped in uh, uh, to talk about uh, Lawfare and his new forthcoming book, The Future of Violence. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, uh, so let's get started uh, uh, we'll just go through, uh, Jason and I, some of the uh, news stories or the snooze stories uh, of the uh, uh, week. Uh, you know, the cybersecurity summit that the president went out to uh, Silicon Valley uh, for was probably uh, the cybersecurity news event of the week before it happened. And afterwards, it was uh, pretty snoozy. Uh, uh, he had announced a uh, the uh, director of national intelligence was going to set up a threat uh, uh, integration center for cybersecurity. Uh, uh, that didn't get much play in Silicon Valley, perhaps because it has a DNI intelligence uh, uh, element to it. He issued an executive order. The executive order uh, essentially um, encouraged uh, standardization by DHS of all of the information sharing advisory committees and, uh, that that it deals with. Uh, um, again, information was the sh- sharing was the theme. It's hard to see that this is going to make an enormous difference for the private sector. Maybe there'll be more standardization of the. Uh, information stand, uh, sharing uh, uh, procedures that uh, folks follow, uh, but uh, uh, I think um, it's definitely second-tier news. There were a bunch of stories out of the summit. They were mostly uh, about the CEOs who didn't show up because they're uh, getting, uh, they're attempting to separate themselves from um, uh, the U.S. government, uh, uh, and then. Uh, 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 Tim Cook, the Apple CEO, delivered a, uh, a, def- a passionate defense of freedom and uh, essentially his uh, company's refusal to uh, decrypt uh, uh, future iPhones, uh, uh, which was perhaps predictable, but um, still, you know, uh, a bit of a surprise to have that happen actually at the president's summit. Um, Next item, uh, Anthem, the Anthem hack is now a couple of weeks old and already the second guessing has begun after uh, Anthem got praise for being very fast out of the box announcing it. Uh, uh, now people are saying they're too slow to do the next step. 
Yeah, you know, the, the CEO when the breach was first announced publicly said that the company would contact every affected customer individually, which is a tall order given that as many as 80 million people were potentially affected, and that the company would be providing credit monitoring and identity theft protection. And now the attorneys, attorneys general of 10 states, uh, led by the AG of Connecticut, have written a letter to the companies criticizing them for the pace of that notification, saying that they have not yet notified these customers, that the customers haven't been given information yet about how they can sign up for these protective services, and demanding that Anthem promise to reimburse customers for all losses between the breach and the time that they actually do provide these uh, this identity theft protection. And it's it's interesting. As you said, the company justifiably got praised for how quickly it came forward, given the magnitude of the event and, and the fact that the investigation was still ongoing. Uh, they came forward and gave quite a bit of information, given the, the limits of what they knew at that time. Um, and it's it's more than unfair, I think, for the, the AGs to come out and, and rip the company for not providing more detail about an event that they're still actively investigating. Right? I, I couldn't agree more. This is the AGs doing what, unfortunately, the AGs do in this area. That, uh, they're in the second-guessing business. Uh, they're uh, in the victim-shaming business. Uh, uh, and it's, uh, you know, there's good money in it. Uh, so I, I don't think they're going to stop. But uh, uh, this is a little silly for them to uh, uh, make a fuss over this uh, uh, at this stage. Well, and... and there's no allegation that I'm aware of that that uh, Anthem has violated the breach notification laws of any of these states. Right. Uh, and it is so early in the event that it's just completely unreasonable to expect the company to make detailed statements about the scope and, and consequences of an event when they don't know what it is yet. And then those same AGs will turn around and rip a company like Target, which does provide information perhaps more detailed than it should have at an early stage, has to correct it later, and then, and then right. they look like fools for – for having to contradict themselves. Yeah, uh, well, I, but that worked out well for the AGs. Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, they're going to end up making money out of this uh, as well. So uh, I'm not sure they, they necessarily see it as a, uh, a bug. It may be a feature that uh, you're forced to uh, disclose early and make mistakes and correct them and be blamed for that. Uh, that um, What part of that does the, do the AGs not like? Uh, all right. Uh, more litigation news, uh, and I followed this only a little. The uh, um, uh, EFF has been locked in uh, litigation with the U.S. government uh, for years over rumors that there were uh, there was widespread interception by NSA of uh, uh, AT&T uh, uh, trunk lines, and uh, of course we know since Snowden that that's quite true. Um, but the uh, EFF's litigation is not going well. Uh, and, Jason, I don't know if you had a chance to, to wade through that 100-page opinion. I, I didn't, uh, although I, I sort of followed the highlights of it. And I have to say I'm kind of torn. I, um, I cheer a little bit every time EFF loses a lawsuit. <laughs> On the other hand, um, there is a, a certain amount of unfairness in the situation that they find themselves in because the judge found that they lack standing because right. they couldn't allege enough facts to establish standing. But at the same time, they're never going to be able to get Access to facts that would allow them to allege standing because of the state secrets doctrine. Yeah, but you know that 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 is that has always been the case with respect to certain kinds of national security programs. They are protected by classified information, and that means that sometimes you can't litigate of, of, about them. Uh, uh, and the idea that everything should be litigable and we should 
bend all of our national security disclosure laws just to permit litigation is, I think, uh, a misunderstanding of the role of law in this area. Well, and I think that, you know, they, it, you know, the, the fact is that if you look at the, the portions of the opinion I, I was able to look at, it certainly looks like the judge really tried to be fair here and tried to do the right thing in balancing um, their interest in litigation with the national security interests at stake, which you ultimately found were were dispositive. Um, so you're right. The reality is you can't litigate everything and that there are certain things that have to yield to national security and state secrets. And the best you can hope for is that the judge is going to be thoughtful and careful in, in doing that balancing. And it certainly seems like the judge was in this case. So there is a lesson here, which is that the, if I remember right, the state secrets privilege says when the when it's played, everyone basically reverts to whatever was the status quo prior to the litigation. That, that if, you, if you're not allowed to litigate over this because of state secrets, that's it. Uh, every, all the losses lie where they fell. Lie. And uh, there are certain circumstances where you can actually set up the facts so that uh, when the government plays the state secrets card, you're holding the money or you haven't paid the uh, the claim, and at that point, uh, uh, you never have to. So uh, uh, a litigation tip for our audience. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, now the, 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 the story that you thought was the big story and that I agree, uh, but for the next uh, disclosure that was made by uh, um, uh, Kaspersky. Uh, but the big story uh, uh, early in the week was a, up to a billion dollars, certainly 300 million and probably three times that, stolen from banks and uh, a big cyber heist. Uh, Kaspersky is having their security analysts uh, 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 event in Cancun. Um, I think the hotels in Moscow apparently were full. Um, and they disclosed this. The, the numbers are staggering, but I thought that the, uh, uh, the tactics were even more troubling. I, um, the way that these attacks occurred is that the attackers got into the network of some significant banks, watched them for months, to see how they applied their cybersecurity uh, and uh, accounting controls, and discovered, among other things, that you know there was a that there were regular checks to make sure that nobody's balance hadn't been suddenly inflated, uh, especially without a transaction. Uh, but they weren't every minute; they were hours apart, so that you could take an account that had a thousand dollars in it, turn it up to eleven thousand uh, dollars by changing the the digits. And then send a wire transfer of ten thousand dollars out, and as long as you did all of that before the next check, which was hours away, uh, nobody knew anything funny had happened. So you could continue to do this for months, or you could set up your the the ATMs so they would start spewing money at a particular moment, and then you could have a guy standing in there looking as though he was just trying to withdraw twenty bucks, and suddenly the machine next to him disgorges uh, hundreds of thousands, uh, uh, and no one realized until much later uh, that he had been sent there and he knew exactly at what point the money was going to start coming out. Um, this compromise of the central systems and the central security systems is a very big deal because it's going to happen again and again, and this is where the real money is. Well, there, I, I totally agree. You know, uh, Prior to this, I thought the most sophisticated or one of the most sophisticated 
operations I'd ever heard of targeting uh, banks was the RBS World Pay hack that, mm-hmm. in 2008 that's being prosecuted in uh, the Northern District of Georgia, which involved a takeover of systems that and a very coordinated operation in 200 cities around the world where there were 2,100 ATM withdrawals all in a 12-hour period, all monitored and controlled and coordinated by by some central command and control people, and then who then covered the tracks and, and tried to disappear. The amount of discipline involved in this makes that look like it was uh, romper room. Uh, you know, not only as you said, the length, the lengthy surveillance, um, the uh, ability to exploit weaknesses observed during that surveillance, and then the fact that that the 300 million, potentially a billion, was really uh, done in, in a series of smaller thefts. That they had the discipline to do a series of smaller thefts that are individually are less likely to be detected. And with more than 100 banks affected in 30 countries, the U.S., uh, Switzerland, Japan, uh, Europe, um, it's it is uh, it's extraordinary. And, uh, and what's also interesting about it is, uh, as if that wasn't enough, is that it apparently started with spear phishing emails. Right. Um, you know, as everything port- does. As everything does. And it just underscores that um, you know companies make millions and tens of millions of dollars of investments in technology to protect themselves, and they build b- bigger and bigger walls. And one employee can let somebody in right. uh, through, you know, not through malfeasance, just it's through negligence. Not, it's not, it's not, it, not even negligence. It, it, you might get an email from somebody you know and trust, uh, or you might go, as uh, one of the stories from the week uh, suggested, you go to Forbes, uh, the, yeah. the website, and you start reading Forbes, uh, and they say, oh, this is a guy from a domain we're interested in. Give them the malware, or yeah. they give everybody the malware, and they only look for the malware uh, back on uh, your bank uh, uh, network. Uh, it's it's not easy to protect yourself from the much more sophisticated spear phishing that yeah. we're seeing now. That's right. Um, uh, so yeah, the other thing I was interested in is because they had defeated the bank's accounting controls. Uh, they, w- they didn't have to smurf this out by paying a bunch of money to people who were, you know, half conscious they were engaged in fraud. Yeah. They transferred this to um, legitimate banks around the world and then withdrew it, uh, uh, which means they could get much more out. Yeah, there's no mules transferring money through Western Union. There's no people who are walking up to do ATM withdrawals with cards and then turning over the proceeds. This was all done taking advantage of the efficient you know the the efficient movement of money in the banking system uh or or what is supposed to be the efficient movement of money in the banking system and as you said it was all done through what appeared to be legitimate transactions so the other thing we're going to see i predict this is a, a a rash prediction if they can do this to the banks they can do this to the credit card processors uh, and the central processors who have all those very sophisticated tools for spotting patterns of fraud. And all they have to go in and do is disable a few of those, and then they can guarantee that certain uh, credit cards won't be turned off for two months. Mm -hmm. And that'll be another big deal. Uh, um, Again, it probably won't break the banks, but this is going to get really serious really fast. It sure is. Okay, um, New York State has, their, the Department of Financial Services uh, has been uh, issuing reports and they, they picked up, uh, they issued one recently on insurance company uh, security and I uh, hope, Jason, you took a closer look at that than I did. They did. This, it follows on reports we talked about last week from the SEC and FINRA, uh, which studied cybersecurity practices of financial institutions. Now, New York DFS uh, did a two-year study of 
more than 40 health and property and casualty and life insurance companies and issued some findings on cybersecurity practices in the insurance industry. I think almost half of the companies studied were health insurance companies. Um, and they studied everything from the cybersecurity frameworks the companies had in place to their budgets to the corporate governance structure for cybersecurity issues and their history of breaches and their breach response capabilities. Um, you know, I guess the good news is they found that all the companies use antivirus software, although in the <laughs> yes. fa- face of the story we just talked about, that's not that comforting. Um, they found, interestingly, that less than 15% of the CEOs receive regular briefings on cybersecurity issues, which given the threat that, that those these issues present to the entire enterprise is somewhat surprising. Um, it wouldn't have been surprising two or three or four years ago, but in this, given what we we know now, what CEOs of especially in this sector should should uh, be worried about with cybersecurity, I, I'm surprised that the number was as low as that. Um, and <coughs> interestingly, and this also dovetails with findings that the SEC and FINRA made, they found that not all the companies um, uh, adequately audited their third parties or their vendors who have access to their systems, and so it underscores. Something we talked about last week in the context of those other two regulators' reports, that you you have to make vendor security as much a priority as as your own security. And and that's pretty much a theme for for the New York uh, uh, financial services yep. uh, regulator that he wants to see more of that, uh, and uh, almost certainly will get it because the regulated industries can't afford afford to ignore this uh, sort of guidance. I you know I, I I'm less troubled or surprised by the fact that CEOs are not asking for these briefings uh, in the insurance industry because the insurance industry hasn't gotten hacked as bad mm-hmm. as some others. Uh, and I think CEOs, you know, they read the Wall Street Journal, and if they don't see their peers uh, getting in trouble over something, I suspect that uh, they worry about something that has gotten their peers in trouble. Although given that, uh, you know, not this wouldn't apply so much to the health insurance companies they studied, but given how many of these insurance companies write cyber policies for their yeah. their customers, Fair enough. Um, I would think that the customers' breaches would be a wake-up call to the insurance company's own leadership. Well, and now that we're looking at patient fraud, uh, that is to say uh, fraud that, uh, that has patients, uh, you could easily have big payouts uh, for fraudulent claims uh, that are just approved by somebody who's in the system waiting to approve it. That's right. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to uh, talk about today uh, um, is the very recent report from Kaspersky uh, um, uh, basically fingering NSA for a series of intrusions uh, uh, and laying out a, a, a bunch of um, uh, capabilities uh, by what they call the equation group. They don't quite name uh, the U.S. and NSA, but uh, uh, they make it clear they're talking about uh, NSA. They just are reluctant to use the word. Um, and uh, um, the most interesting uh, aspect of this, apart from the fact that they go out of their way to say this is by far the most sophisticated set of attackers they've ever seen, a, a remarkably talented and capable um, a, a, they uh, they talk about a, a way of implanting hard drives so that even if you totally reformatted your drive uh, and then rebooted, reinstalled everything, uh, the, compu- the computer, because of the hard drive, would still be slaved to the uh, attackers uh, because they've gotten in and dealt with the code that lies 
between the operating system and the hard drive uh, in a way that uh, allows them simply to boot up whatever they want to boot up as soon as the uh, uh, operating system says, okay, we're ready to go. Um, and that um, capability was actually originally advertised uh, in a... Um, uh, a leak that's associated with Snowden, but probably wasn't Snowden, of a catalog of attacks uh, uh, that said, yes, we can implant hard drives. Um, and this was probably disclosed a year ago. Um, and now uh, what Kaspersky has done is explained exactly how that happened. Um, I, it's... Um, it's quite scary because obviously now that it's been disclosed, lots of people are going to do it. Uh, and it gives us a sense of just how hard it is to really protect yourself against a determined attacker. Uh, the other thing the, uh, that I was struck by, um, I don't know if you followed this, the, the, there was this claim uh, by Kaspersky, and here I think frankly, their ties to Russian intelligence or their, uh, um, at least their Russian nature and their sense of obligation to the country uh, is showing. They said these hard drive uh, makers' source code must have been provided to the attackers. Uh, and uh, you can see why that would be a story the Russian government would be enthusiastic about uh, putting out there cast doubt on uh, whether you should buy U.S. equipment and whether there's some uh, conspiracy uh, between the car drive makers and the U.S. government. I I think they're completely wrong about that. You, you sort of look at the list of them. It's Toshiba and Samsung. And you kind of wonder, well, what do they owe the U.S. government? But my understanding is that the uh, Firmware code is actually not buried deep in the, the hard drive. It's on a little EEPROM chip that you can pull out and stick in uh, uh, a, a breadboard and then just reverse engineer it, uh, all of the code. To, uh, at least that's my understanding. Uh, and the fact that Kaspersky didn't even raise that possibility, didn't look at that at all, but went straight to, oh, they got the source code, um, reminds us all that this is a company whose sense of obligation runs more to Moscow than anywhere else. Uh, I, so I was disappointed in that, but it was still a remarkable capability. Okay, uh, we've got uh, Ben Wittes here. Ben uh, is um, a former, uh, uh, and somebody I've known since the beginning of his career, former reporter for Legal Times, where he was the first person to actually, first reporter to visit the FISA court. So, the only one. And the only one, yeah, that's probably right. Uh, and uh, then he went on to become an editorial writer for the Washington Post at a time when the Washington Post editorials were uh, uh, not entirely predictable. Uh, and I uh, uh, has spent the last eight years at Brookings uh, as a policy analyst and as the editor and um, guiding spirit of Lawfare, uh, a remarkably successful, uh, at least in the world that I inhabit, uh, um, collection of materials, blog items, uh, and journalism uh, uh, relating to law and national security. Uh, welcome, Ben. Thanks. Uh, ben, I, uh, uh, I asked Ben on uh, the program in part because he told me he has a new book, which I, I 
we're going to have to ask him how he found time to write, uh, called The Future of Violence, uh, and that uh, uh, obviously leads to the, the first question, well, what is the future of violence? It's bright. <laughs> it's you got to wear shades. It's a, it's a bright future. Uh, so this is a book that I wrote with uh, uh, Gabby Bloom up at Harvard Law School, and um, the it was actually animated uh, by a, it was a, num- a number of things, but including uh, one of the observations that you had made in Skating on Stilts, um, which was that people tend to discuss cyber, bio, uh, and other threats caused by sort of exponentially progressing technologies in abstraction from one another. Um, we, that is, we have a cyber debate, we have a biosecurity mm-hmm. debate, we have, you know, a debate about drones, um, but that they're really all the same debate. And the debate is what happens and how do you govern a world in which uh, the power to attack is radically disseminated among so many different actors and constantly disseminating and the lethality of those attacks is ever increasing. Um, and so we thought it would be fun uh, and terrifying and interesting to take that observation to its logical extreme and say, first of all, let's not treat these in abstraction, in, in sort of stovepiped isolation from one another. Let's do an exploration uh, at a non-technical level of the end point of that progression, which is a world in which anyone can attack anyone else from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're all, we're all super empowered. We are all super empowered, but we're also super vulnerable. Right. Um, and we are also uh, radically uh, necessary for defense. So... What do you, what's that mean? Well, so... Uh, you know, we ha- now have a world in which uh, governments cannot engage in surveillance without pervasive cooperation of the private sector, right? Ah, right. In which the um, uh, user who lets somebody plug his phone into somebody else's computer to charge, as I just did when I walked into this room, is an individual cybersecurity threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and in which the coastline of the United States... Uh, is defended from massive oil spills by a private corporation. If Imagine for a minute that the BP explosion had been, as many people believed in the first hours that it had happened, that it was, had been the result of an intentional act rather than an accident, as it turned out to be we would understand that attack to have been the most successful attack on the United States since 9-11. Mm-hmm. And the entirety of the kinetic defense against that attack was conducted by a private corporation. Um, and so that's the state of the world as it exists. But I think the defense function continues to migrate just as almost as quickly as the attack function. So you have a world in which everybody is radically empowered to conduct attacks, everybody is uh, extremely vulnerable to attacks, and everybody is necessary to the defense against attacks. So we call it the world of many-to-many threats and many-to-many defenses. Mm -hmm. And the question is, in that world, 
is Hobbes wrong? Ah. Um, does, does, does that pose a basic challenge to the liberal theory of the state, which is that you give up some small measure in a liberal state, in a, in an authoritarian state, some large member, measure of your liberty in exchange for, uh, and, and, and the sovereign power to rule, uh, in exchange for the authority and capacity of the state to protect you. And our question is, well, what if, in the world of many-to-many threats and many-to-many defenses, the state is actually no longer meaningfully capable of protecting you, or its capacity to protect you is eroded. Right. Um, More likely likely eroded than completely gone, uh, and certainly capable of, uh, in an emergency, uh, mobilizing the the defensive capabilities of the private sector. Uh, the private sector will respond to government, at least the first time and probably multiple times, um, when its capabilities are needed. But if if you're having to do that, kind of make it up as you go, it's going to be a pretty clunky effort the first time around. Right. So, I mean, there are many different iterations of the thesis, right? The thesis, can you can think of it as the hard science fiction dystopic version in which the state is simply completely unable to fulfill right. the basic vision of a sort of Hobbes or Locke. Um, and, you know, then that that's a bad scene, right? And then you have uh, less dramatic versions of it where sort of levels of protection we expect from the state are have historically expected are not available and we have to look to other actors to provide them. And those, um, which I think is much more likely, by the way, uh, does involve some substantial changes in the social contract, right? I mean, if you're looking for your basic protection to actors other than the state, um, then the Leviathan is a, is a much more complicated yeah. and, and much less obviously um, – Leviathan-y undertaking. So I, 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 I obviously agree with the first idea that uh, uh, we're super empowered. That we, these technologies are popular and mass uh, 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 manufactured precisely because they empower lots of people to do the things that matter most to them. And unfortunately for some of them, killing as many of us as possible is what matters most to them. Uh, so uh, for sure, that's going to continue to, uh, to uh, be uh, a worry. Um, and that put, makes us all vulnerable, I see. I'm, I'm not quite as convinced, but maybe this is because I am a, um, a big government conservative, at least in national security matters. Uh, I, I think that the, uh, the government will always have the ability to marshal and to seize the capabilities of responding to attacks. Uh, just because in an emergency, people uh, respond well to being asked to do things by their government. They, 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 they defer to leadership more than you otherwise would. So I'm a big government centrist, as you know, and mm-hmm. particularly in national security matters. I don't think our views are all that different from one another. Um, but I want to try to talk you out of your optimism. Okay. About that. <laughs> and, my, um, my, my, my last shred of optimism. So, uh, and look, I'm, and I'm not trying to advance the prediction that we're all doomed, because in fact, 
the book is an exploration of the question of how do you govern a world of many to many right. threats and defenses. And as we put it in the conclusion, um, you know, there's that scene in Annie Hall where the uh, young child, Woody Allen, stops doing his homework and his mother takes him to the psychiatrist and he, or to the doctor and asks, he, you know, he says, why aren't you doing your homework? And he says, because the universe is expanding and if it's expanding, it's everything. Someday it'll explode and that'll be the end of everything. And he says, you know, but he stopped doing his homework. And he says, what's the point? <laughs> and, you know, um, the, you can't govern you can't assume the project is undoable, right? right. That the universe is right. expanding. So you, so the book is, is really about assuming that the project is undertakeable. Right. And that just as Hobbes was a response to the security dilemmas of uh, 17th century Britain, um, there are theoretical developments that you need in response to a world in which the state of nature can be can import itself back in from other countries that said i i think the cybersecurity environment is a very strong argument against your view which is it's not an emergency that creates the degradation of government authority it's the ongoing day-to-day incapacity to do the things that people need done mm-hmm. to feel protected and feel secure. And it's the problem of um, massive uh, inability to create an environment that is sufficiently stable and sufficiently secure that people have confidence in the platforms in which they use. And part of that problem is inherently jurisdictional, that there's limits to what we, in fact, have the authority internationally to do and the willingness internationally to do. And so you try all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, the environment gets bad enough that people look to actors other than the government to protect them. And that is corrosive of the social contract as, you know, as a Hobbes or Locke imagined it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm more skeptical I, I, because actually I think a, a gradual erosion of, let's say, our confidence in the security of our uh, online transactions and uh, um, our activities online and or and increasingly with the Internet of Things, our, our ability to go unnoticed uh, or even to drive our car without having somebody do something bad to us. If, if we find that happening, which is certainly a plausible future, um, there are many, many security measures that we have not implemented that would change the dynamic for attackers. Uh, and yes, many of them currently are being done by private security companies. Uh, but in the end, uh, um, 
all of that knowledge is available to the government if the government says you will give us that knowledge. In fact, you've been drafted. Uh, we are putting you uh, and your expertise at the uh, disposal of the nation to solve this particularly egregious uh, concern. Um, why is it now? It's true that it would take a lot to deal with the cybersecurity threats, especially cyber security threats that are nation states. But um, if you could make it unprofitable to engage in cyber crime, uh, the idea that we face a war of all against all in cyberspace, I think, would go away. So I think that's right. And and again, my 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 proposition is not that it's uh, hopeless that we can't do it. Right. Uh, the proposition is that you can't not think about how you're govern- going to govern a world in which that the project of governing a world in which anyone can attack anyone from anywhere is profoundly different than the yes. project of governing a world in which you have these things called states that control these areas called territories and they kind of engage with one another internationally in the international space and they all rule their own spaces and by the way the most powerful technology that the individual can use is much less powerful than what, than, the, state than what the state possesses. And the higher up you go in the levels of the state, the more access to more empowering technology you have. Those are fundamentally different undertakings. I, 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 I agree with you on that. And, and so we face this, this uh, and, and indeed part of my book was an effort to say, why is it then when we can see these uh, futures coming, we don't respond. Right. And, and my answer, uh, broadly was, one, we don't, because it's inconvenient, uh, to us. It's inconsistent with the privacy, uh, uh, campaigners view of the world. And it's usually inconsistent with some portion of the business community's desire to continue to sell a product that, uh, for 99% of the people who use it is just good news. Right. So here's an example that is A, futuristic, but B, the more you think about it, not so futuristic that we shouldn't think about. Okay. So there are many enterprises, public and private, that have experimented with tiny drones, insect-sized right. drones. The main constraint on their uh, ability to function has been battery life. Mm-hmm. Um, they have generally been used for forms of uh, very invisible surveillance. But we hypothesize, this is a, a function partly of, of Gabby's great fear of spiders, um, the following scenario, where you put your foot in your, in your bathtub and you see a spider, and you're not initially sure, first of all, is it a, if it's a real spider, is it venomous or mm-hmm. is it... Uh, but secondly, you're not entirely sure it's real at all, that it could be a sort of micro-drone little right. spider. Right. And in one iteration of the spider drone, it's a sort of surveillance drone that you know, someone's controlling from their iPhone for their own amusement. Um, and in the other one, it um, scuttles onto your foot and injects you with something lethal. And in, in our fantasy version of it, it first... Um, tests your DNA to verify that, that you're actually right. you, and then it injects you with a poison and scuttles away. 
Now, which part of that fantasy is actually fantastical? Um, and the answer is, based on current technology, a lot of it is not doable. Right. And I can't imagine why over the next, probably faster than we think, those components will cease to be realistic. And, and so I, I, you know, if you think about the Russians killing Andrew, uh, Andre Lugovoy in Moscow with some, you know, pol- polonium, mm-hmm. uh, isotope, you know, why bother with sending an actual person to do that, right? Why not do that with, you know, a remote, um, bug, um, and uh, and I think you know we sure you could you could you could you could have an atomic powered bug uh, and it could just drop its power payload into the victim and uh, sure uh, and then fall away. I, I mean, <laughs> once you start playing with it, you know there you, you can. But 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 if you tether yourself to not the the doable today, right? But the I can't really think of why it's not won't be doable 25 years from now. Right. Uh, you get into some pretty scary stuff. Here's another example that I think is totally doable today. And I say this, you know, we, we talked about whether to include it in the book because, you know, it's not the, you don't want to give people ideas. Right. But this, you know, so the whoever did the anthrax attacks, and I have no reason to doubt the FBI's conclusion. Some people do, right. so I'm just going to keep names out of it. But whoever did the anthrax attacks um, labeled right. the envelopes. This was a, you know, now we have anthrax, get penicillin now. Right. And if you're trying to kill as many people as possible, putting the anthrax, which he had milled very effectively, so it was a very lethal thing, in sealed envelopes is about the dumbest way to do it. And labeling them is kind of comic, almost like, you know... Oh, he clearly didn't expect to kill a lot of people. Exactly. And um, what if, you know, so we had the Lawfare drone smackdown Mm -hmm. a a, a couple of years ago. Um, The payload capacity of these drones now has gone, gone way, way up since then. Uh, you put some of that stuff in a stadium and you fly it over the stadium and you kill a lot of people. Um, right. Now, I asked a microbiologist friend of mine, um, how plausible is that? And he just laughed at me and he said, um, it's a total overinvestment in technology. You could have exactly the same effect by driving through the streets in a Around truck yes. and throwing the stuff up in the air. Right. You don't need the drone. Um, and so I think the idea that the individual gets to have his own weapons of mass destruction program is not futuristic at all. Right. The only reason we haven't experienced it is that Terrorists are very unimaginative people, and they like They're to conservative. do conservative. They don't want to, they don't want to look like fools. Right. They don't want to try something that won't work. And every now and then, you get one of these entrepreneurs like KSM, who's highly imaginative, highly intelligent, and thinks big. But they're very rare. And most terrorists try to do what worked the last time. Mm -hmm. Nobody did suicide bombings until somebody established that it worked, and then it caught on because it was pretty easy to do 
and it really worked. And I do worry a lot that we are imagining things that can, you, you once said to me that sometimes if, if things seem inevitable, it's because they are. <laughs> and, and that stuck with me. I think that there's a, um, a, a sense in which, uh, some of these things are actually too easy not to happen. And we are living uh, in a lull between when people figure out how, in that lull between the space, between the time when things become possible and people figure out that they're possible. And you can convince yourself that that lull is a steady state, but I don't really believe it is. And I think the world will, will, the problem of the world of many to many threats becomes much more apparent the moment that the bad guys, and some of them aren't even terrorists. Some of them are, you know, people who want to, you know, there's the guy in prison in, in who uh, used uh, the web, you know, wrote malware to turn women's and girls' webcams against them. He has right. more than 200 victims. Um, some of them are not, you know, we think in national security terms, but the line between national security and personal security become very fuzzy here. And I think we're living in a space that's um, probably not stable in the long run. So, it, yes, it, it's sort of um, happy, realish, and short uh, to <laughs> to borrow from yes. Hobbes. Uh, so, okay, so I, 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 I you know, um, you tend to be conservative if you can think of. Uh, bad things that could happen and, and spend most of your time worrying about them. Uh, and, and so I, I, I agree with you, all those things are true. But, you know, the, fu- the, the future we're living in now, vi- viewed from 1970, already looks um, very bad. Uh, you know, people can be killed uh, at, uh, at a distance by anybody. There's the... Um, the Reach of terrorists, their ability to uh, destroy the World Trade Center is not something that was envisioned uh, in 1970. And the tools that we use to control it, including, let's say, the 215 program, would have been viewed as a, just a shocking and utterly unacceptable compromise. Uh, uh, and so it would have been part of the nightmare and not part of the solution. Uh, don't you think we're going to end up there? We're going to have bad things will happen and we'll say the only way to solve this is uh, nobody can do uh, uh, do-it-to-yourself biotech research without a license. Uh, and you know, everybody who accesses certain kinds of data banks uh, for biotech information is going to be tagged and uh, surveilled. Uh, right now, that sounds shocking and would be appalling. It would be the end of uh, civil liberties as we know it. But if that's what it takes to prevent people from b- building uh, biotech weapons, we're going to do it. Well, so the last third of the book, uh, we try to do no sort of laundry list policy prescriptions mm-hmm. because figuring out sort of the, the book is sort of at a more tectonic level than right. that. Um, that said, one of the central portions of this part of the book 
is a discussion of surveillance and when surveillance is corrosive of liberty and when it is enhancing of liberty. Mm -hmm. And it is an attempt uh, to reorient that discussion a little bit. We have this idea of surveillance that, you know, surveillance exists in tension with liberty. You may have to do it for certain security reasons, but it's always corrosive of liberty in the right. process. And because liberty and security exist in a sort of, uh, you know, precarious balance, mm -hmm. right? And one of the parts of the book that I'm very proud of, actually, is an attempt to really disrupt that conversation. Well, um, that would be fun. And I um, – the basic argument is, first of all, the premise is wrong. Liberty and security – do not exist in a precarious balance as a general proposition. That's why North Korea, which has no liberty, is not the world's most secure place, mm -hmm. right? And Somalia, which has no, uh, you know, which is Hobbesian in the, in the state of nature sense, is not the freest place in the right. world, right? Um, so our argument, is that in fact the relationship is not a precarious balance. It is these are two things that are generally uh, mutually supporting and cannot exist in abstraction from one another. Right. And they are also uh, at times mutually hostile. Um, and so the analogy that we draw is an analogy from from um, evolutionary biology, which is the, the idea of a hostile symbiosis, right? Um, right. A, a complex set of organisms that interact with one another in very complicated ways, can't live without one another, but also are always threatening to destroy each other. Um, and how a given surveillance measure is going to interact with that hostile symbiosis can be very, very complicated and deceptive. And we have a lot of tricks to avoid confronting the complexity of them. Most of them are linguistic. So all surveillance we don't like is snooping. Is called surveillance. Right. And all surveillance we do like, we have other names for. Community oriented policing. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Um you know, people demand a cop on the beat. That's a form of surveillance, right? right? It's not Fourth Amendment search, right. but it is watching a public space. Mm -hmm. And we regard community-oriented policing as liberty-enhancing, right? It right, allows right. us to use yep, yep. neighborhoods, but we never call it surveillance. Uh, right. Um, because and so, surveillance is bad, right? Because surveillance is bad. Let me give you another example. Um, airport security surveillance Evil. is called screening. Ah, right. 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 Even the stuff we yeah, decide yeah. to tolerate, even though it's obviously surveillance, these are pat-downs that in other contexts would be prosecutable as a sexual assault, right? right? Um, we choose a word for it. When we go through people's mail looking for anthrax, we don't call that surveillance. We call it screening. Mm -hmm. We have all kinds of names for surveillance other than surveillance when we like them. Right. And our point is that there are uh, very important circumstances in which surveillance is essential to liberty. And we try to identify what are the conditions, by the way, which doesn't track at all with Fourth Amendment law, right. which is interesting. 
Um, so this is sort of a non-doctor, this is, you know, Fourth Amendment law thinks in terms of searches, not right. in terms of surveillance. Yes, right. And um, our argument is that there are actually conditions if you go through the doctrine. We have all kinds of words for it, special needs searches, yep. right? But the conditions under which we regard surveillance as liberty enhancing are relatively easy to identify. And they are the following, broadly speaking. Um, first of all, it's surveillance of platforms, not of individuals, mm-hmm. right? So if you're watching the, the place, right. watching the space, um, secondly, if it's non-investigative, right? right? If it's non-discriminatory, if you're watching the playground and you're looking at all the black people, that's going to be a problem, mm-hmm. right? But if people really believe you're there to, you know, to prevent bad things from happening on the platform and people really believe that, they do not react to it as, right. um, and then finally, if the surveillance involves accountability and, um, it is itself watched and, mm-hmm. uh, and if people believe it is reasonably calibrated to the threats to the platform. Um, and I think if you think about that set of ideas about when we regard surveillance as corrosive of liberty and when we regard it as enhancing of liberty, there is a message in there about how we should think about surveillance of these platforms in which all kinds of dangerous stuff could happen amidst all kinds of good stuff that is happening. Um, and so it's a, it's an argument um, for a doctrinal tolerance of a certain type of programmatic platform surveillance. Um, I expect my uh, in. Th- uh, my fan club on the civil liberties left and right, <laughs> which has already been winnowed to a very small number of people to be, uh, winnowed further. Let's yes. Say. No, I think that's right. When, once, once you introduce, uh, cavity screening, uh, uh I think, uh, you're, you're, you're going to lose most of it. But I'll be interested to see whether you disagree with any of it. Okay. Uh, well, I, I'm sure your, your, your fans in the civil liberties left and right expect me to agree with it all. Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Well, we're looking forward to it. It'll be out when? It'll be out March, uh, 10th and we'll have a launch event at Brookings at, on the 11th. That's terrific. Thank you very much. Oh, and, and one, one more thing I just wanted to uh, bring up. Uh, uh, the prospects for having a giant beer blast uh, for listeners to uh, uh, Lawfare and uh, Cyber Law podcasts. Uh, uh, I know you've been talking about the possibility that we could get everybody into a bar and do these uh, shows. Is that a possibility? I think this has got to happen. I think the Steptoe Cyber Law podcast, the Lawfare podcast, and the Rational Security podcast need to have a uh, beer summit. Yep. Um, in which all three podcasts are recorded. And lately, I don't know if you've listened to any of them. Uh, I've been. Uh, they, they sounded like you'd already started on the beer. This, uh, <laughs> so lately I've been, uh, uh, 
organizing a podcast called the Chess Clock Debates, uh-huh. where uh, we have declared war on moderators, and uh-huh. we have put two people across the table on opposite sides of issues, and moderated only by a chess clock to mark time. Bang, 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 bang. and they they are fabulous. Yeah, um, good. And because we've you know. Because I, you know, lose the will to live when I think about Jim Lehrer, let alone, <laughs> yes, let alone so see. Um, and so I, I thought we could remove – so I thought maybe the chess clock – that we could have an impromptu chess clock debate at the beer summit after oh, a few beers. I think that's right. Uh, with uh, 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 chess pong maybe we could yeah, do. Exactly. Uh, uh, this, this, this would be a lot of fun. And yes, I was uh, thinking maybe we could do the whole thing as a fundraiser for the Lawfare Institute. Well, uh, sounds fine to me. Uh, okay, well, uh, we will rev- uh, return to this uh, idea uh, multiple times, but uh, uh, start thinking about uh, where and when we ought to have uh, all three podcasts uh, recorded at the same time. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'd be welcome to come. The beer's on you. Just a reminder, the Cyber Law Podcast is now open to feedback. You can send questions, suggestions for uh dives where we could drink and talk uh, and for topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com if you'd like to leave a message by phone uh contact us at 202-862-5785 come on i we have yet to get a really good abusive voicemail so please um, uh rise to the occasion now this has been episode 54 of the steptoe cyber law podcast brought to you by steptoe and johnson next week uh, this should be fun we'll have nula o'connor president and ceo of the center for democracy and technology uh, after her shaban gorman formerly of the wall street journal uh mike rogers formerly chair of the house intelligence committee and andy osmond uh, uh head of uh, cybersecurity at DHS's uh, uh, NPPD organization. We hope you'll join us uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.